What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. All right, welcome back to another episode of The Coach's Corner, a special guest, a little four-way podcast today. We've got two familiar faces, Polly Rocket and Cameron Cheek. How are you guys doing today? Doing everyone safe? Everyone safe from the coronavirus? Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And a new face to the podcast, but hopefully not his last time here. Really good to have you, Broderick Chavez of Team Evil Genius. How are you doing today? I am well, guys. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, glad to have you. So today's podcast is going to be kind of a general PED-ish conversation. We're going to jump around from topic to topic, some interesting topics about professional bodybuilders, some questions from the people on the internet, um, the great world of Instagram, and we are just going to roll it from there. Broderick, you ready to kick it off? Happy to. Let's What's on your mind? Damn. Let's do the damn thing. All right. So the first kind of topic that we wanted to talk about was if you've seen Backstage Secrets of the Pros. Is that what it's called, Broderick? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. So it's a series on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube now with Tom Platts. There's an interview with what's well, not supposed to be Ronnie Coleman. You're not supposed to know it's Ronnie Coleman, but I mean, let's be real here. Where Ronnie Coleman talks about just some some general things about his PED usage throughout his career. Um, the first thing that kind of caught my eye or really caught my ear when I was listening through it was Ronnie Coleman made the comment that he had, I ain't never taken drugs until <laughs> after I got my pro card. I thought, that, I thought that was a pretty good Ronnie Coleman impression. Pretty good? It's, not, so good? it's, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. All right, perfect. You, you, you sounded mildly more intelligent than he, but uh, Okay. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, people always tell when I was bodybuilding, people used to always call me the more intelligent Ronnie Coleman. So <laughs> I, 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 I'll take it. So, Broderick, I would just love to hear your opinion there of that statement by Ronnie Coleman. Is Ronnie Coleman that much of a genetic freak or is he just misleading people? Um, I, I hate to just throw somebody under the bus and say, oh, they're a fucking liar. But <laughs> in, in, in the case of athletes at large and I work with a lot of Olympic caliber athletes and that sort of thing who are essentially just litigiously or financially bound to the idea that they basically are forced to lie so I'll momentarily put Ronnie in that category and say that he's just not in a position to be as forthright as we wish he would be so I'll leave that as my answer but there's there's just certain, I mean, again, go through, you know, the scientific literature, go through history, go through whatever you want. And, you know, using the fat-free mass index or any of the, the reasonable variables, there's just no possibility that a person could achieve the level of pro bodybuilder and still be the human species. Is Ronnie Coleman particularly gifted? Yes, he is. However, I suspect his variety of gift is not actually that he gets muscular really super easy. I actually comically think his genetic gift is that he's incredibly tolerant of drugs. But that's a separate conversation and one that I'm making from a distance. It's a more of a diagnosis than a, you know, an actual hands-on knowledge. But no, there's no one, again, in your mind, you guys work in this industry, you guys work in this field, and everybody watching this video is at least watching from afar is there a difference between natural and professional bodybuilders? I mean, when you go to a natural bodybuilding show, do you see that one outlier? Do you go, oh, he could be on an IFBB stage? No. 
the biggest natural yeah. bodybuilder in the fucking world in the best condition that he could ever be in is what 205 pounds maybe yeah. 220 and that guy were like yeah i don't fucking believe him really so you're just suddenly there's like one random asshole that's gonna walk on an ifbb pro bodybuilding stage with no drugs it's fucking horseshit all right for all the Doug Miller comments in the in the comment section. Yeah, <laughs> look at the weight class for natural bodybuilding too. Like, what, what's heavyweight? Like one ninety five cap, two hundred five cap, something like that. It's like I don't even think it's that. I think it's lower than that, isn't it? It's like one ninety eight up. I don't, heavyweight. I don't, I don't dignify natural bodybuilding with my <laughs> attention. I, I know nothing about it. I don't care. Even so, even when you see like the 3D MJ guys, like the Jeff Alberts, the Alberto Nunez's of the world, like they cross over into the NPC and they do well in their weight class, but because their conditioning is so good. But as soon as they step up to the overall and they're going up against these super heavyweights that are clearly enhanced, what happens? We, I mean, we see what happens there. Yeah. Well, and the, really, <laughs> the argument isn't even that. The argument is just it's just total size. Like they're just it. You know, the idea of a 200 plus pound natural bodybuilder is is a fantasy it's a fucking unicorn doesn't exist so why are we having that discussion and i mean i just i just don't even understand the concept i mean realistically too like you know alberto i think he's a great natural natural bodybuilder but he's five nine and you know he has two decades of bodybuilding and on stage what's his contest weight 163 165 maybe you know 170 for sure yeah. Yeah. So now, now suddenly you're you're arguing that somebody only an inch or two taller, three inches taller. I mean, Ronnie Coleman's what five eleven, six foot maybe. But you know, before he became a cripple, you know, maybe six foot, and you know, in his twenties was competing well over two hundred pounds. <laughs> that, that just that's just that's not reasonable. You know, if he was five pounds or even ten pounds heavier than the rest of the field, you'd be like, yeah, all right, that's maybe genetic variation. That's that's potentially possible, but. Literally being 50% larger, fucking get out of here. That's that's a difference in speciation. That's fucking nonsense. Something absurd, like eight standard deviations from the mean, just fucking. Yeah, it, it, it's just not even possible. And, you know, and then if you also go, you know, in that same era, you know, when he was a, a, a recreational powerlifter, you look at the totals he was posting, they also do not in any way correlate to the natural ver version of that. So, again, it's doubly horseshit. <laughs> Sticking with kind of Ronnie Coleman here, he made some additional statements in that interview about his insulin and his growth hormone use. Anyone, even like these these casual observers of Ronnie Coleman, if they just kind of know who he is, they're like, oh, that's that pregnant guy on stage. So as as Ronnie's career kind of progressed, his, I guess, gut also progressed as well. And his statement in there was, as soon as I started using insulin and growth hormone, my conditioning started to suffer. For From your standpoint, is that a valid statement? Or was there something else that was contributing to his conditioning and his overall physique starting to slip? Maybe something like age or time in the sport? Um, actually, I, 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 it's funny. I do actually correlate it to insulin use, but not in the way that people think. I don't think that insulin is the culpable compound. I think that insulin typically in the, uh, at least the prehistory of bodybuilding, Insulin tended to mark the delination for last straw. It was the, the last compound, the last resort of compound. And so it typically draws the line in the sand where the person is now clutching at straws. And that also happens to mark drug tolerance problems. You're just now taking everything you could find and as much of it as you could tolerate. And lo and behold, that does delineate bad consequences. I don't think it was the insulin. I think it was the insulin plus the growth hormone plus the ridiculous dosage of testosterone plus the ridiculous dosage of anabolic steroids plus the, you know, the painkillers and all the other things and, you know, ancillary drugs and blood pressure medication and Cialis and all, you know, when you add up the 67 fucking compounds, the problem is simple drug burden. Again, if you look at that distended midsection, this is an interesting problem that bodybuilders have, is they tend to think, as I guess probably every demographic of people that thinks, they're the center of the universe. They're the representative, representative of their version of humanity. But if you step back and look in more of a clinician-type view, 
you know, scope of things, that presentation, that distended midsection shows up in lots of demographics of the medical community. Things like diabetics, HIV patients, alcoholics, okay? It crop, even potentially certain cancer uh, presents in that sort of, you know, thin, skinny arms, the classic, literally the classic Palumboism. Thin limbs, particularly low body fat, a distended midsection. It's more likely pancreatic stresses and liver stresses brought on by drug burden. Alcohol is a drug. In the case of a diabetic, sugar is essentially a drug. It's drug burden. And how many times have you heard this? Again, just being the casual observer of bodybuilding, how many times have you heard this bodybuilder X, Y, or Z go, oh, you know, my midsection's getting a bit thick, and they go off on some pilgrimage to wherever, Dubai or fucking the moon or wherever the fuck, to fix their problems. And they come back, albeit with a smaller waistline, but also with a smaller physique. Now, what would make a physique smaller? I wonder. Hmm, maybe less drugs? Weird. Yeah. Fucking weird how that correlates. Yeah. I think it's interesting you brought up uh, stresses on particular organs like the pancreas and liver. And I believe like uh, individuals with hepatitis, they get a lot of fluid volume in their gut, correct? 100%. Um, but well, also what I find is interesting is, uh, you know, like if you take – Dallas McCarver, for instance, and his autopsy, and many of his organs were, what, two or three times the size of typical organs, um, that maybe also there's some organ growth or something going on there just with the absurd anabolic, you know, stimulus and stuff. What, what do you think about that? Because I, I find it hard to believe you can be 330 with abs um, and other things not also potentially grow. <laughs> Um, well, again, it depends on it depends on your, your your mindset or your concept. I think there's a lot of people out there going, like, yeah, I told you, uh, growth hormone makes your organs grow. That's not true. That's simply not true. In in um, in pubescence, growth hormone has action on almost every tissue of the body, and growth hormone is called growth hormone because it actually causes growth from adolescence to adulthood. It affects bone length, it affects you know, organ size, it affects all, even, even uh, ne neurological proliferation. It causes systemic, global growth. However, once the hormone shift associated with pubescence uh, activates, if you will, bone caps close, certain epithelial cells change in their receptivity, and growth hormone no longer has that systemic global effect. And now it only has effect on certain tissues, i.e. muscular tissue, adipose tissue, potentially certain digestive tissues, uh, but it no longer affects those other tissues. So this idea that growth hormone's making the heart or the liver or the you know, the, the stomach or some stupid thing larger. That's just not true. There is zero evidence to support that. As a matter of fact, it's been looked for deeply in people like, you know, Andre the Giant, who actually have pituitary disorders and live a life of acrobagelia. It just doesn't fucking exist. So now it comes to, could these people have enlarged organs? And if so, what would be the mechanism well, it turns out that we do know that alcoholics and heroin addicts and certain other do get enlarged liver. They do get hepatomegalia. We do know we do know that having an exaggerated body weight can cause enlarged hearts. We know that these things happen, but they happen for causes accumulated or, or collectively by the behavior associated with bodybuilding and drug use. It's not that this drug did that. It's that this drug was culpable in making you three times the size you were supposed to be, and the <laughs> only way your body could respond is develop more your know, organ mass to basically keep you alive. Okay, and do you also you also see they talk about growth of like the small intestine and the large intestine, the GI tract. What what's that a response to? Because we say the heart is to you know to supply this three hundred pound individual. Is it greater food demand? What's the what's the cause well, there? You see, again, I'm not 
I'm not aware. And I think if I, anybody on earth would be aware, I would be, I look for these things. I'm not aware of much in the way of studies where the bodybuilders postmortem have actually had your intestinal mass measured and weighed and compared to the bell curve of other people of equal body weight. So I'm not even convinced that it's a real thing. I'm literally not convinced that it even exists. Uh, however, I do know this. Um, when I was just finishing up college, I actually had an awful lot to do with uh, the people that ultimately went on to, to create the company Metrex. And they were very, very smart people. They were very well connected. And they all had ties to universities and therefore very extensive access to literature. There is this. Growth hormone does have direct effect on a certain family of cells that live within the, the lining of intestinal tissue. And growth hormone does cause a radical proliferation in those cells. There are a variety of cells, I'm momentarily blanking on the name, but there are a variety of cells that are literally there for the purpose of tearing away. They're literally uh, almost like lubricant cells. They're like disposable cells. So they exist kind of like, like little fins. And as the mass moves through the intestine, they tear away to prevent damaging the actual lining of the intestine. Okay. Growth hormone definitely, well-defined in the literature, causes the proliferation of those. So I believe that somewhere along the line, the correlation between a proliferation in intestinal tissue and the growth of intestinal tissue have been somewhat transposed. They're not exactly the same thing. Okay. This is speculation on my part, but it's the only rational speculation I could come up with to justify that rampant belief. So it seems like no one knows what the fuck they're talking about. As a rule, that's the case. Um, that's the, <laughs> well, again, I, I, take, I hold a funny position. One, because I'm the asshole that's willing to say this shit out loud. You know, people like you have as much or more education than I, but you're bright enough to just keep your head down and ignore everything. I'm the fucking idiot that can't keep my mouth shut. So that that's part of the problem. But in a way, I, I view this, you know, I, I don't take a particularly, you know, I don't say I don't take a dim view, but I don't take as dim a view of bro science as most academics do partly because I defiantly refuse to consider myself an academic, but also because, and this is silly, but it, it, it makes me remember my grandmother. My grandmother knew and believed all sorts of things that were very practically relevant to her life, but then she really didn't understand the mechanisms. She had no idea why. She just knew it was. And occasionally she would make up some goofy story, much like the ancient Greeks, you know, thought the, the sun was a flaming chariot. And it sounds ridiculous to us, but you're like, you know, when the only concept of mechanized movement you're aware of is a chariot and the only thing that makes light is fire, that's a fucking reasonable collection of thoughts. <laughs> so we've got the same thing. We've got these bro scientists that are avant-gardely taking compounds they're getting results. They take the thing, they get the result. They know X and Y, but they have no idea the mechanisms that got them there. And so periodically they just make up flaming chariot bullshit stories. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily right, but you know, I, I, you know, I, like I said, it kind of makes me smile and remember my grandmother. So I don't kick them down the steps, but that it's, that's about it. Yeah, I've always hey, you uh, bro science stuff is just kind of like, you know, before all this, you know, internet and everything came out where people had access to learning stuff, everything was just kind of better safe than sorry. Like, we we know this works. We don't know how, but sure. Yeah. yeah. You said, let's make up a reason why, because that makes sense from an outside surface. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to be fair, and this is something I do even point out, and I don't like to like almost, almost sound like I'm double talking, but even we scientists... There's an awful lot more we don't know than we do know. So we're, we're, we're just, you know, kind of slightly, you know, mid-tier bro scientists in, in reality. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's some, you know, higher tier looking down at us like, look at those fucking idiots, you know, because <laughs> they have a white coat on. They know what the fuck they're talking about. And it's not, it's not true. I'm aware of that. Kind of staying, staying on the topic of conditioning. We talked a little bit about Ronnie Coleman's conditioning. 
let's talk about the current state of professional and national level bodybuilding. So for the sake, we'll, we'll, we'll stay in the U S we'll just say like NPC national level bodybuilding over kind of the past few years, we've seen somewhat of a decline in conditioning. And I think that this can be seen with Brandon Curry winning the Olympia Brandon Curry, when he won the Olympia was far, far from lights out conditioned when he was at the Olympia. He had some glute striations. You could see his abs, but his legs were completely washed out. And we could see it with someone like Big Ramy at the at the Arnold. One day out, he looks phenomenal. Conditioning. That was, he steps that was on stage. He just, the Lee Haney era conditioning. Yeah, he just looks so water. So would you attribute this to kind of something similar to what you said with Ronnie Coleman's conditioning slipping, where the magnitude of drugs is just too much? Or what would you say? No, as a matter of fact, you you need less drugs to be that shittily conditioned. I, I don't I don't buy that in the slightest. Um, I believe the problem is a political one. I believe that the people with the money and people making the decisions are actually preferring those varieties of physiques because they believe whether they're right or not. I don't know, and I wouldn't even begin to assume that I know. But I believe there is a mythos among the actual let's call it corporate elite that believe that that variety of physique is more marketable and more sustainable as a business. And they're, you know, whether it's overtly or subversively changing the judging criteria to generate the outcomes they want. I think it goes in hand with all these douchebag extra divisions where changing the fucking length of your shorts somehow changes the sport you're in. I think it's fucking retarded. But it's I you know I think it's retarded. I'm not. I don't care what other people think. But I think it's silly. And I think the problem is the you know the the nature of the the marketing of the sport, not the actual athletes. Yeah. You know, look at women's bodybuilding. Every time women's bodybuilding has run, the athletes escalate to a point, and then the organization puts the kibosh on it, knocks them down ten. You know, calibers, and then it claim. You know, if you look at women's physique now, it, they're more muscular than women's bodybuilding of the '80s. And eventually, women's physique will get too muscular. They'll knock the legs out from under that. They'll go back down to somewhere toward bikini, and it'll escalate again. I believe we're seeing that same thing in men's bodybuilding. I think the actual organization is kicking the legs out from under it because they think the physiques are unmarketable. And another, probably more relevant but harder to say out loud. Um, I think they're also concerned about deaths. I think that, I mean, I don't think they actually give a fuck about the athletes, but I think they give a shit about the PR consequences of people dying for trophies. Yeah, that's really interesting um, that, you know, you presented that the issue is likely centralized to the organization because I, I see a lot of opinions placing it on the athlete like some people will say well they're bigger now and they're seeing lines earlier and they're just not pushing conditioning as hard or you know when you get bigger it's just harder to get that grainy striated look or like things like that or they're afraid to lose mass or shrink down like, I feel like the bigger you are the easier it is all of those are valid but at the same time all of those arguments can be uh neutralized by somebody like myself, and, and I'm by no means alone in the field. There are loads of people out there that do what I do, and some of them even better. And, you know, I mean, the the proof of that is, well, we have Yates, and we have Coleman, and we have, you know, th these people exist. It's, it's, they're not, you know, it's not a fucking mythological creature. It happens. And my experience is we do kind of have some lighthearted, bodybuilders in the mix but i think we have them in the mix because the judging standard has allowed them to be in the mix if the judging standard was circa 1995 those people would never have made it to the cream of the crop they would have languished in the you know the the mid-tier and the real aggressive risk-taking alphas would have replaced them the big difference between the 90s and now was the, the filtering mechanism was such that you were literally seeing the 1%. Now you're seeing the 3%. You're right. Yeah. I, every now and again, I see the argument too, because before people would say, you know, whatever era of bodybuilding was better. And then I'm like, ah, are you sure? But then they post a photo of like the top lineup from like the nineties to a top lineup of yeah. like today's day and age. And you're like, 
oh my god like what happened you know like back then you're like who do i pick and then yeah you look at the 92 3 4 5 olympia anyone in the top five would have won every olympia you know since coleman retired literally as much as i think he's a complete fucking tool bag i mean sean ray would have won every olympia you know in in the modern era and and he was probably overrated in his era (laughs) i mean you you same thing you um and I, I've heard him almost say this, and I, I wish he would just say it out loud, but um, uh, Lee Priest is in the same boat. Like, you, you, they made an entire division to protect little bodybuilders. You know, and Lee Priest competed in a fucking open. One pro shows, and now they made a special division just for the little people. Like, that's fucking ridiculous. You know, yeah. if that existed during, during his era, he would have gave that the finger. Yeah. Like, he wouldn't have competed in that bullshit. I remember an interview from him where somebody asked something like, you know, something along the line of, you know, how's it feel being a smaller guy? And he's like, I'm not the small guy. I'm <laughs> I'm just as big as they are competing with them. They're the absolutely. small guys. Like, <laughs> absolutely. 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 You know, that reminds me of, you know, like Tom Platt's once, you know, somebody asked him, like, don't you feel your legs are too big? And he's like, no, I think everyone else's are too small. And, <laughs> and I just feel that that's exactly how I feel about that. You you just got me like, that is such a trigger for me whenever I have a client that's like, hey, can we train this less? I feel like this is too big. I'm like, how about we get everything else bigger? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When we get everything else bigger, you can, you can decide to prioritize things like yeah. <laughs> or deprioritize. Yeah. You're huge. Okay. Those 1990s and early 2000s, even the national sh- like level shows for bodybuilding, it's just because I, I was yeah. introduced. I didn't even know what bodybuilding was two and a half years ago. I, I'm new. To, I just got introduced to it. And I think it was a couple months ago. Somebody was like, yo, look, look at NPC Nationals back in like 2000. And I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I, again, I, the example I use, and again, it's funny because it's all people I don't even fucking like. So it shows you how powerful an example it really is. But Dave Palumbo wasn't able to become a pro bodybuilder. That's how deep the national caliber was. I mean, I mean, again, you're talking about walking personification of tool bag, but from a physique <laughs> level, I mean, 285 fucking pounds, grainy striated. And couldn't get a pro card, that physique would have placed in the top five in the Olympia today. It's not even a question, not even a fucking hesitation. So, so if they, again, if, the, the, this idea that somehow you know the the conditioning standard has lowered is just it, it, I, I, again, again, like you, if you even remotely have the ability to just flip from page to page across the timeline, you have to acknowledge that. And now so they shift kind of the judging criteria away from the super conditioned in an effort to curtail drug use. Do you see that working? Do you see that no, as something not that's at all. Even plausible? Not, not at all, because what it does, unfortunately, uh, in my opinion, what it does is allow what I said is kind of the the beta personality to slip in. And those fuckers would rather just take more drugs and train less. So you actually just get lazier, more abusive bodybuilders. Um, you know, I, I, again, I don't like to romanticize the past. I don't want to be one of these, you know, old curmudgeon, hey, get off of my lawn. You know, you know I don't fucking want to be that guy. But unfortunately, the world is seriously pushing me that way. I, I was, you know, when I was very young, very young, 15, I was around people like Tom Platts, Dr. Fred Hadfield. Um, fuck, who else? Uh, who else? Was, Tom Dieters, who was the uh, editor in chief of Muscle and Fitness at one point, like real deal industry people. And the attitude, the spoken attitude was you trained up to your dosing. That was the idea, literally like calories. You can eat as many calories as you want as long as you're willing to train that hard. That was the attitude with milligrams is you don't even consider raising your milligrams unless you're seriously considering raising your training ethics. That was the attitude. That's what drugs were for, to support your training, not the other way around. And it's the other way around now. Mm. Yeah. Things looked pretty neat when it was how it was back then. <laughs> and people yeah, and, it, and <laughs> you know, you look back and, you know, some of the training methods were admittedly a bit fucking spastic. I mean, I, you know, I love Tom Platts to death, but the shit he did was really more war crimes than actual training. 
Like, but if you stop and think, if he did not dose the way he did, that training would have killed him. He trained up to his dosage, which if you take a moment and work the math on that, that re- you, you, you immediately realize that his dosage must have been significant because training was fucking significant. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Absolutely. What, what's interesting too now that I'm kind of thinking about it where you're talking about like the judging criteria maybe trying to push this not as heavy drug use and now I don't know how long it's been like this, but NPC Universe, the overall bodybuilder, gets drug tested. Yeah, I think that's a tradition kind of why related. Even, yeah, it's like, why is that? Why are you going to send someone to the same league being drug tested as people that can go through without a drug test? Like, what, what sense does that even make? Well, again, from a marketing point of view, I mean, look at the IOC. The drug testing arm of the Olympic Committee is literally the PR arm. They're the arm that validates, oh, these athletes are genuine. We're, we're selling you a wholesome product. Literally, and think about that. Like, if you were a, a beef farmer, how ridiculous would it be for somebody under your employment to be the guy stamping that, nope, this is hormone-free and antibiotic-free and wonderful and, you know, it's been loved and petted. And No, that's an outside entity that does that. The U.S. government does that. But in the case of the Olympics, the same group that actually holds the event is the exact same group that then validates it and puts the stamp on their head and goes, no, no, they're wholesome. You can believe them. For the universe? Bodybuilding is now trying to do the same thing. Though the, the universe, the team universe winner wins, and then bodybuilding puts a stamp on their head and says, no, they're drug-free. You can believe them. Like like Ronnie Coleman, they're natural. <laughs> and it just gets more that are natural. It's to I think they have a chance. Do you know and, how... And, the funny part is, in my opinion, and I mean, admittedly, I sit in a funny position and have a funny view because of what I do for a living. But the truth is, nobody gives a fuck. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. And if you want to see if people with, really not Olympic care. caliber athletes. I deal with literally people that go to the Olympics and have stood on the podium. I work with those athletes. And every time a conversation rolls around, we wind up talking about Ben Johnson. We're like, how the fuck was he so fast? you know, 30 years ago, you know, and it, not that like, oh, he might've taken drugs or he failed drug tests. It's just, what was he doing? Like, how did he do that? I want that information. No, you know, then this is people that theoretically should be offended by the idea that he cheated. They don't, they don't give a fuck about that. They just want to know like what made his feet go so fast. That's all they want to know. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to see how, little people would care about your beloved sport of bodybuilding is just go to a natural show. Look at the attendance of a natural show and then go to Miami nationals and see well, the I mean, attendance most there. of them are held in like high school gymnasiums. Like <laughs> yeah, you, you pull can... drugs out of NPC bodybuilding, NPC bodybuilding dies. It's done. Yeah, you can 100%. just, you, it's like done. There, it doesn't exist anymore. But that applies yeah. to everything. If you took drugs out of NFL football, like who, look at the attendance of a high school football game. And not that not that there's no drugs there, but I mean, yeah. you know, there's there's considerably less. The the budgets are lower, <laughs> you know, and the time frame of use is lower. But yeah, you know, what's the attendance? I mean, a well attended you know high school football game is what two hundred people. You know, that's, that's yeah. not going to pay NFL salaries, folks. I'm not totally sure, but I feel like I've heard that there was like a year or maybe a couple years where they they tried to do testing in bodybuilding and uh, yeah, uh, oh, Sean, funny Sean Ray actually failed the first official drug <laughs> the uh one of the first or second arnold classics i think it would have been nine eighty nine ninety. there was a and and the funny thing is they made such a huge deal they drug tested all they tested for was diuretics oh i see it was right during that window there with the wbf they were trying to be contemporaneous with the wbf drug testing which put them out of business so you can see what a fucking great idea it was um <laughs> But anyway, yeah, they, yeah, there was a drug test, and, and Sean Ray and a couple of others failed. Yeah. If we're staying on the topic of conditioning here, let's kind of take a look at the most commonly used fat loss drugs and the magnitude of effect for them in the scope of a contest prep diet. So we're, let's start with kind of the pharmaceuticals and the, the higher end ones. So let's start with things like T3, clenbuterol, 
and DNP. So we'll start there. Okay. First of all, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to correct you per se, but uh, everyone blurts out T3. Um, I, would, I would dare say the intelligent, uh, discerning athletes, it's, a, it's actually either T4 or a combination of T4, T3. Just, I, know, I know that's very pedantic, but I'm not offended. I'm not if, offended. If we're trying to be specific, we should. So let's just say thyroid medications. Um, and the, the impact there is probably less in terms of the overall fat loss than people want to believe. People really want to believe like that's the, the fat loss mechanism. And like muscle growth, fat loss is a multifaceted aspect. You have to liberate the fat. You have to get the fat into circulation. You have to get the mitochondrial aspects you know, receptive to said fat. The liver has to make enzymatic changes for dephosphorylation. There's a lot of things that go on. Thyroid medications really only affect a narrow sliver of that. Literally just the receptivity in terms of you know, mitochondrial oxidation. That's it. So there's a, lots of gaps. So one of the things thyroid does, in my opinion, that is so valuable is actually not not the, the minor ramping up of that narrow sliver of fat oxidation. It plays a concert role in overall hormone uh, effectiveness, that magical synergistic thing. It simultaneously makes anabolics work better. It simultaneously makes insulin and growth hormone work better. It simultaneously upregulates that fatty acid oxidation at the mitochondrial level. It does lots of downstream signaling that raises the overall effectiveness. The I am not a car guy, but I'm American, and most of the time I'm speaking with American athletes, so cars are a really easy analogy. And it, it would be akin to, you know, if you have a, a, a car and you're trying to make it a hot ride and you upgrade all the parts except that one, that's the weak link. And once you upgrade that part, even nominally, the overall machine is able to run at a higher level. You know, if you just, you you upgrade the transmission and the all the things, and but you, you, you don't affect the carburetor. And then suddenly one day you take that carburetor off and you put fuel injection on it magically, the whole machine runs better at every profile. And it's because that was the rate limiting aspect. I really believe that's what's going on with things like thyroid is it's just raising the overall ambient effectiveness of the drug package. It's not that that was the missing aspect on fat loss. I believe to a small degree, that's what goes on with clombuterol. Although clombuterol is a bit more niche in what it does, that beta-2 uh, receptor brown fat activation, it maybe gives you access to fat stores that you otherwise would um, not have priority access to. But even still, it's not a night and day game changer. Um, and there's also, to be fair, there's a little bit of maybe a gender differentiation here. These compounds we're talking about are nominally effective in men and maybe more so in in women. Women seem to have a more, um, or so let's say a less responsive thyroid complex than men. And they're probably for the very purpose of preserving body fat for procreation. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, my, my, what I'm getting at here is these things are percentage points at best. They're not these night and day game changers until you get to DNP, which is an animal of its own. Uh, and I point this out to people all the time. DNP is literally classified as a fucking poison. Okay. It is a poison. It is phenomenally powerful. I.e. it can and will kill you if you let it. Unlike thyroid or computer, all these other things like, you know, you, you really would have a very hard time killing yourself with those compounds. Uh, DNP is very, really quite easy. Uh, and one thing I will point out about computer, or uh, rather uh, DNP is there is a, a, a wild misconception that it's, it's a radical fat burner. It's actually wrong. It is a radical energy burner. It dissipates energy. Where that energy comes from, what compartment or what fuel source ultimately powers that release of energy is dependent on a lot of conditions. Does that make sense? 
when you're, uh, I don't want to go into deep chemistry with your listeners, but um, myself and probably every other expert, probably all of us on the screen combined have made this pedantic error and said, oh, well, the body runs on carbohydrates. Body runs on glucose. It's actually wrong. The body runs on ATP. Glucose happens to be the thing that body can most easily make into ATP. Therefore, our statement's not ridiculously wrong, but it is wrong. The body runs on ATP. Okay, Whether it's fat, protein, or carbohydrates or some combination thereof, your body takes it apart and then phosphorylates ADP, adenosine diphosphate, with a free phosphate making ATP. That's what the body then uses as its moment-to-moment energy. That's what power cells. DNP is a chemical short circuit that fissions that free phosphate off of the ADP, creating, again, an ADP, a free phosphate, and the binding energy in chemistry. When you get two things to stick together, the thing that glue that's sticking them together is binding energy. When energy is released, a la fucking Albert Einstein, when energy is released, it's released in the form of heat. And that's what's going on there. That's how DNP works. That's how it, you lose that energy. And you lose the energy in the form of heat. That's why your temperature goes up. Okay? So it's not really burning fat. It's causing you to lose energy. Then your body panics, goes around and scrambles for energy. One of the stores of that is said stored body fat. So, yes, it ultimately does cause a reduction in body fat, but it's at the expense of actual currency. So, anyway, probably went spastic on that, but. No, that was, that was, that was perfect. No, yeah, I've heard, uh, we have uh, uh, kind of like a biochem guy. His name's Hector Piaz. He's doing his PhD at Tennessee on our team. He always talks about DNP as just making your body more inefficient. So you just lose that efficiency. Yes. You, you're bleeding energy. It's literally like a short circuit. Instead of the energy going to its intended purpose, it's just bleeding out into space. Yes. So when I was doing my master's, I asked my um, I asked my uh, endocrinology teacher about T3 and he couldn't give me an answer. So I'm going to selfishly ask it to you instead. Um, T3, the negative feedback loop associated with T3. What's kind of the time frame and what's the magnitude there? Well, again, you're asking a bad question. Because there's multiple, multiple, multiple feedback loops. Okay, you, you have to look at the entire process. The HPTA axis is such that the first line of production is TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. Thyroid stimulating hormone goes up. That hormone stimulates the thyroid to produce T4. T4 goes up. Then your liver acknowledges the existence of T4 creates a conversion to T3 and some other cool little, there's T2 and a bunch of other cool little things that happen. And then T4 is then the, or rather T3 is then the active compound. That's the story most people know. The reality is there's a bunch of sub layers to that. One, there's a feedback loop on the TSH itself that can quash that production. Two, there's a feedback loop on T4 that can quash that. Then at the liver, there can be a log jam in the enzymatic processes that convert T4 to T3, so you don't get any downstream production. And then, where are we at? Five? Five, when you produce T3, you're also simultaneously producing reverse T3. And reverse T3 is actually the feedback mechanism that then comes back around to the very beginning and quashes the TSH aspect. So as you have this elevated T4, over time, what happens is we'll just make up numbers. These are not accurate, but this is by, for example, let's say it's 50-50 T3 reverse T3. And then over time, it becomes 49-51 and then 48-52. And slowly over time, due to, let's call it fatigue, you get a lower and lower conversion from the T4 to the active T3 and more to the reverse or inactive T3. And so the indicatory mechanism to say this system is running in overload and we need to shut it down is going up and up. Eventually that red lines comes back around and closes the TSH loop and then the whole system settles down. 
Then okay. you also have in there as a grand orbiter, you have T3 antibodies, which can affect the entire process at a greater distance at a greater systemic magnitude, essentially leading to basically a, 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 an induced Hashimoto's disease, which is a whole big schmaz that I'm a, a, an expert and I only vaguely understand. But anyway, did I, again, did I go too far? No, that was perfect. Yeah, Dr. Hoffman be damned. I've got the evil genius on the podcast. I don't I don't need those PhDs. I think it's really interesting and ties into a strategy I know you've spoke on before when introducing these compounds within a contest proper fat loss phase where you would begin with T4 to try and preserve that conversion mechanism and then eventually sort of phase into T3 and potentially exactly. taking out T4. Exactly. Exactly. Once you know, exploit your body's natural pathway to its greatest degree, once that you know, split and red line mechanism begins to come into play, then you transition from T4 to T3 because now T3 is the only option you have to generate the mechanism. More T4 would just exacerbate the closure of the loop. Mm -hmm. But if you just jumped ahead immediately, and this is what everyone says, well, why not just jump ahead to the T3 since that's the one that works. Now you're ex exaggerating the final steps, the actual death doors of that <laughs> mechanism. So once you close that feedback loop, now you're just ball screwed. Yeah. And leaving those mechanisms kind of closed down for longer durations, probably, I would assume might make reversing the process a little more complicated or problematic. Well, Right. And, and really, it's not even a matter of complicated as much as it is just a matter of time course. Time course is the evil. Again, I, I, I use the example most of the time talking to men in the precious fucking PCT bullshit. But usually I use this argument in the PCT context, but it applies perfectly here to the, the thyroid mechanism. If you owned a factory, okay, and you make anything, you make tennis shoes, widgets, fucking you know, spinny faggoty spinning things you make man bun you know things i don't care you make something you have a factory okay you have a factory and it has a normal production schedule but because of coronavirus you have to close your factory every day you are closed makes it harder to open because fatigue sets in the, the floors get dirty, the machinery needs lubricating, the supplies go bad. And so even if today you got the heads up like, oh, we need we need more man bun, you know, things, you don't just turn the lights on and start making them. You got to rehire your staff. You got to bring in a maintenance crew. You got to fill up the snack machines. You got to do all kinds of shit. So there's the longer you are closed, the longer the upregulation period to getting back to business. It's, it's obviously, shamefully, obviously simplistic. So it's not so much that you caused shutdown or suppression of your precious natural testosterone. It, that's not the issue. It's the issue is how long did you suppress it? Just like this coronavirus condition, some people have been out of business sufficiently long that they're never going back into business. That's what's going on with your thyroid or your precious, you know, little dingleberries or whatever the fuck you're worried about. The longer you shut it down, the more likely it is to stay shut down. That is sixth fucking gray biology called homeostasis. There's like a little song of fuck about it on Sesame Street for fuck's sake. But Sorry. I think that's the I think that's the million dollar question, though. If you could answer that one for people, you would you would be. We're talking Bill Gates rich here. So how is it? Is it one to one? Is it highly genetically varied? What influences that shutdown period outside of kind of dosage and duration of use? See, that's the thing is dosage isn't relevant. That's the thing that people seem to have this belief that, you know, whether you're taking TRT values or you're taking the dose I'm taking, it's it doesn't work that way. It's not a magnitude issue. It's a duration issue. Any magnitude above what your normal production would be closes the feedback loop. You can't close something twice. You can't really, really, really fucking close it. It's like a door. If it's fucking closed, it's closed. Wait, how does it get more closed? Like what? literally, if you're in a factory and you close the factory, what, what, what do you burn it down? There's no other. <laughs> there's no more closed. Like I don't understand the logic behind that. That's the thing is people are like, well, I'll take I'll take dosage, but I, I won't go over a gram. I'm like, why? Why? Well, why? 
Like, you know, if you, if you're going to go to the trouble of shutting down the, the system, why not get what you're actually paying for? Why not do, why close your factory and then not get any residual income? Like that doesn't make any sense. Like you only close your factory. If you know, you're going to get a large stimulus check from the government to take up the difference. You know, why would you, why would you just close your factory for no income? That's kind of dumb. If I'm uh, if I'm not mistaken too, I believe there was a Bazin study where they took from 25 milligram up to 600, and the lower doses of testosterone cause lower testosterone. Like their testosterone decreased from Bazin. Right. Well, of course it did. I'm 100. And why wouldn't it? Like anybody who understands well anything should really know that. Like that's just kind of how it fucking works. Yeah. So you're just taking enough drugs to suppress your natural production and have none. Well, that's useful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, chemical ca- chemical castrations way better than you know building muscle. Yeah. What I do find interesting, and I believe uh, I've seen some of this talk, if I'm not mistaken, on like you know uh, Michael Scally's uh, Facebook group, and I, I, I'm not saying the argument came from him, but I've seen people suggest that um, the idea of doing a PCT restart occasionally just to have breaks in shutdown so you're not shut down for like six years straight may not be valid like that you may be able to recover just as well without those breaks after say a five-year period well that's my argument is not that pct works or not that it's valid i mean these are real medical tools that exist because of real medical conditions like these these drugs wouldn't exist if there wasn't a condition in which to treat drug drug companies don't work that way they don't just dream up a drug and go Ooh, what does this do and then like you just keep giving it to people like, oh it does that all right well wait till somebody has that no a condition exists and they go oh we have hypogonadal people how would we treat that and then they look at the biology they identify the pathway and then they start isolating things and create a drug that's how pharmacology works it's not a bunch of people sitting around smoking cigars like how can we fuck up the world today like that's not what's fucking going on that's retarded that's fucking goofy fucking vegan assholes with no fucking sense in their head because they're protein starved fuck oh, i think uh oh, gotta go, guys i don't have a goddamn stroke i told you i told you we'd get you there it is so anyway the argument isn't that you know pct is valid or the pct has a place the problem is People don't understand the relevance and they don't understand the necessary diagnostic methodology to apply it. If you are taking drugs and you just stop taking drugs and start taking PCT, that is by definition wrong. Your body has absolutely zero impetus to manufacture testosterone until it is legitimately hypotestosterone. So you have to wait for all of those drugs to clear your body down to not normal levels, but sub-physiologic normal levels, at which point, and this could be, depending on if you're taking depot compounds, you know, this could be months later, literally, at which point levels achieve a suppressive value. The mechanisms for the feedback loops associated with that begin to engage at that point, and that point only, does your body even want to make testosterone? Now you have to let that play out and see if it can. If it can, then by definition, no PCT was necessary. If it cannot, that is the moment in time on which you would introduce a stimulatory compound, a gonadotropin, etc. But the problem is people have no patience for that. People are not really interested in their natural production. What they're really interested in is preserving their drug-driven gains. Mm-hmm. That's what they're interested in. It's a situation like mommy said, I can't have a cookie, so I'm going to have a candy. Mommy didn't say I couldn't have a candy. So the, the rules are you can't take any more of these drugs. So now everybody's panics. Go, well, what drugs can I take? Oh, I can take these drugs. <laughs> so it's just a different variety of drug addiction. It's like a heroin addict. I can't get street heroin. Would you give me methadone? Oh, thank you. And then as soon as they find heroin again, they put that methadone down and they take the fucking heroin. That's what drug use is in bodybuilding today. That's what PCT is. PCT is for somebody that literally doesn't want to take drugs anymore. Find me one of those assholes, and then we'll have a PCT conversation. God, I don't think, uh, start it's me. You. I'm the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a legitimate conversation. That is a legitimate thing. And it can legitimately be addressed with those drugs 
if it is needed. But things that would be required would be like, I don't know, a blood test, maybe a fertility test, those sorts of things. But what you get is, this is, again, talking about bro science, this is what you hear. And I hear this all day long, and I hang up on these people. I, I literally do. I send them their money back, and I hang up on them because I hate them with all of my <laughs> black, left ventricular hypertrophied heart. I, I hate them deeply. I literally vision in my mind. I see them just bursting into flames and running through fields. I fucking hate them. So what what, what I hear is, well, I've been off drugs for six months now, and I, ju I just feel like shit. I, I don't feel like I used to. Well, of course, asshole. You were <laughs> taking drugs. Now you're not. I think everyone who's ever taken drugs, any kind, cocaine, anything, taking drugs feels good. Not taking drugs feels normal. Normal does not feel good. It's, it's, it's direct. There's a linear correlation there. To say I don't feel as good as I used to when used to was drug abuse. No shit, numb nuts. <laughs> I think uh, with the am I interrupting you? Do you have more more ranting? On, um, <laughs> no, no, I do not. <laughs> I think uh, one of the faulty sort of thought processes too from individuals that are like, oh, I'll run a PC once or twice a year. That way, when I'm done with drugs, I'll bounce back real quick. Is uh, false expectations for the time course of recovery. Like they think they do a PCT, testosterone bounces back, but I've sort I've helped a small handful of individuals with this process. And it sometimes takes six months, a year, just to get into low normal. Like- Absolutely. And that's the appropriate <laughs> so, time course. And that's how biology works. It, it took me 18 months. So yeah. after three and, years of cruising and blasting, it took me 18 months. And I counted that 18 months as a success. After Absolutely. three years that, being I was on, just say that that's not inappropriate in the slightest. And yeah. you're relatively young. Imagine, you know, you know me. Oh, yeah. Like, like, like I'm, I'm laughable. Like, I've been on drugs for 35 over. years. You're like, dying. it would never happen. Dang I couldn't. You might as well take you out back and put a bullet <laughs> in the head, dude. You're yeah, I, I couldn't. <laughs> but that's just the thing. And then the other comical thing, and and you know, you know, one person doesn't make a study, despite the fact that you know Schoenfeld will do a study with seven people and say it's a study. You know, one person doesn't make a study, but, you know, again, I I've been using drugs since I'm 16 fucking years old, never made any precautionary, you know, concessions. I have a school bus full of kids. So this idea that, you know, drug use equals infertility is just wrong, wrong, any wrong, wrong, wrong. Like, so again, you know, most of the dipshittery arguments that people use to just justify their fucking drug use are just wrong. They're just wrong. Yeah, and also, I think uh, the the magnitude of effect that can come from some of these PCT drugs to have kids. Like I've seen people two weeks in the PCT, four weeks in the PCT, um, get their wife pregnant. So like oh, yeah. they act like the and, and there's always a potential. It is a long and hard and complicated process, but I think uh, people go into it with the expectation that it's just gonna be in, like impossible. I had a kid on cycle at 19. Yeah. Howdy. Ronnie Coleman has eight of them. Yeah, exactly. And, and so does pretty much right every there. other pro bodybuilder that isn't gay. Yep. Like, and yep. maybe even some of them. Like, it's just, it just happened. It's just not that big of a fucking deal. And the people that say, like, oh, taking drugs made me infertile. It's like, how do you know you weren't infertile in the first place? Like, you don't. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, you know, that's literally, that's the logic that people, you know, doctors use to prescribe Lipitor. You know, I gave you that prescription five years ago and you have a heart attack. So clearly that's working. Or maybe you were just never going to have a fucking heart attack. Like that's also, you know, you can't prove the absence of something with the absence of something like that just doesn't work. Yeah. Anyone who studies logic understands that that's not valid. Mm-hmm. Hey. All right. We are coming up on that hour time point right now. We want to be respectful of Broderick's time as well as yours. So hopefully if Broderick will have us, we'll bring him back on for a part two. We'll talk um, some more subjects. We got a couple more really, really good questions talking peptides, um, androgen dosage, all that fun stuff. Um, Broderick, thanks a ton for coming on. Tell the people where they can find you. Ah, fuck them. No. <laughs> he doesn't want you. <laughs> No, anybody anybody that's interested in more of this ranting and raving can find me at uh, Team Evil GSP. That's website, Instagram, Facebook, all the everything that I have is Team Evil GSP. 
And Paul, where, where are you has, at? He has a paid site, you know, so. Correct. Go sign up. Go sign up. Just plug. Shameless <laughs> plug. Paul, where can, where can people find you? Instagram at Polly underscore rocket. That's Polly with an IE. Don't forget the don't forget his uh, uh, fans only site. <laughs> that, that, that one's onlyfans.com slash Polly Red Rocket. <laughs> and Cam, where are you? Instagram at Cameron underscore cheek. Cameron will take all of your rush preps. If you're six weeks out and you're about 30 pounds over stage weight, Cam is the man that you want to see. He will help you out. Pyretics. <laughs> As always, thanks for coming through. Thanks for watching. Like, comment, subscribe. The whole shebang. We are the Gifted Performance team. As always, stay gifted.